welcome to Vote, the podcast. It's August, yay! We're one month closer to the election. Uh, and today we are going to tackle some of the biggest barriers to voting that face some of our most underserved communities. Are you worried about this election? Well, don't worry. We are going to be here all the way until November to help guide you through. And we're going to answer your biggest questions about voting. Because this election isn't just going to be about who we vote for, it's about how we do it. We are the voting preppers. I'm Kat Calvin, founder of Spread the Vote. We work day in and day out to make sure that folks have the tools that they need to go to the polls. This has been a huge week for me. I discovered Leah Ramini's new Scientology podcast, and now all I want to talk about is voting and how much I love Leah. Thank you for that recommendation, Kat. You always listen to the best podcasts, so I am excited to check it out. It's true. I do. She does. And I'm Andrea Haley, CEO of Vote.org, where we work tirelessly to simplify political engagement. This week, we are celebrating the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, very important, and Kat and I are going to talk about this later. It's so important to remember that a generation ago, not only would I not be sitting here speaking to you as the head of Vote.org, but I wouldn't even have the ability to vote myself. So when people say that nothing has changed, it just isn't true. We still have a long way to go to make sure voting is accessible to everyone in this country, but we do also need to recognize how far our country has come. Amen. Today's question is coming in from two of our favorite people, Nicole Byer, who you know as the host of The Greatest Cooking Show of All Time, Nailed It, and Sashir Zameda, who you've seen on SNL, like a lot, because she's hilarious. They also, though, happen to be hosts of the podcast Best Friends with Nicole Byer and Sashir Zameda, which I'd like to point out I will soon be on because I'm obviously going to be one of their best friends like tomorrow. And uh, they're just basically the best humans, amazing comedians, and they have a question about voting. I'm Nicole. And I'm Sashir. And we want to figure out how to knock down barriers to make voting easier for people. (laughs) Yeah, voting is uh, everyone's right. And it's also a privilege. I love voting. I've been doing it since I was 18. And Sometimes people aren't able to do it, and that's crazy, and it sucks. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I wish it was easier. I also wish it was easier. And there are ways it can be easier. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking different languages to help people who speak different languages. Mm -hmm. We're talking about ramps for wheelchairs. We're talking about... Ramps, 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 ramps. We need more ramps. Well, I was like, what if someone has crutches? And I was like, well, they need a ramp too. And then I was yeah. like, well, what if someone has a lamp? And I was like, they need a ramp too. So then I got excited about ramps. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy how hard it is for some people to vote. Yeah. I think that if people know that they can help out, then they will. And then it'll be easier mm-hmm. for their community actually elect people that they care about. I'm excited to vote. Yeah. Also, if you vote, you get a sticker. Uh, I love the stickers. And then you can post about it on Instagram. Yes. And that's cool. Be a part of that cool trend. (laughs) And it's nice to do it with friends. Like, if you are going to stand in line for hours, because sometimes there are polling locations that don't have a lot of booths and you do have to stand Mm -hmm. there for hours, do it with friends. And then it's like a group activity. You're hanging out. Mm -hmm. You're talking the whole time. You can bring cards. You can bring coloring books or whatever. Just you know, color on the sidewalk, and then vote. So tell us what we can do to make voting easier. Please. Tell us. 
Thank you to Colin Sashir. That was both hilarious and informative in its own way. And I think you guys should do a voting podcast. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe come be on ours and then we'll come be on yours and we'll all just be voting best friends. Uh, this issue is actually something that we talk about every day at Spread the Vote. We work with so many clients for whom getting an ID is just one of many barriers that it requires to vote. Um, and it's something that we all have to be thinking about and talking about daily because voting just simply is not easy for everyone in this country. Uh, and we all need to make sure that everyone in our communities can be included in the process. Exactly. So to help us understand a bit more about this, we will be speaking to Judith LeBlanc. Judith is an activist, organizer, and the director of the Native Organizers Alliance. She's also a member of the Caddo Tribe of Oklahoma. She's been working for Indigenous rights for years and is going to help us understand a bit more about the needs of Indigenous communities and why everyone having the right and ability to vote is so important. Before we get to the amazing Judith LeBlanc, let's focus on Nicole and Sashir's question. And this is actually a perfect day to do so, because if you're listening to this on Thursday, August 6th, it is the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. On this day in 1965, our nation took a big step towards making sure that everyone could vote. And then in 2013, we burned it to the ground. Uh, but Andrea, what are some of the major barriers to voting that are facing marginalized communities today? Well, there are a lot of laws on the books and problems in communities that actually work against voters. So the first being, right now in this moment in time, the lack of funding for our elections. It's going to be really important that Congress fully funds elections in the states and that we fully fund the post office. One of the things listeners can do about this right now is pick up the phone, call your senator, and tell them that it's really important to see elections funded. Um, Another huge issue, voter identification laws. And this is something that Kat is an expert in, so I'm going to kick it over to her to talk all things voter ID. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, Voter ID is the thing that I do. Um, And for people who don't know, so a majority of states have voter ID laws, which essentially mean that they say that you have to have some form of identification in order to vote. And what that looks like, what those forms look like, uh, it it changes in every state. Um, And although this is on the books in uh, in over 30 states, and it changes so frequently that by the time between recording this and actually publishing it, another state will have added. Um, Actually, every state uh, sometimes has situations situations in which you need an ID to vote. I live in Los Angeles and I have to show an ID to vote for my neighborhood council. So it is a problem everywhere. Uh, And the issue with this is that over 21 million eligible voters don't have government-issued photo ID. And if you have ever been to the DMV, then you know how difficult it can be to get one. You have to show birth certificates and proofs of residency and identity and and original documents for every time you've changed your name. And That is really challenging for a lot of people, but particularly uh, if you don't have an ID, so you're already unable to legally get a job or, you know, have a place to sleep frequently, um, you know, then being able to gather the funds, our average ID cost is $40, all of the documents, uh, being able to have transportation, more than 10 million Americans live more than 10 miles from a DMV. And those are frequently in areas where there isn't good public transportation. 
So all of these these challenges converge to make it difficult to near impossible uh, to get ID. We have helped people get ID who haven't had them for 20 or 30 or even 40 years sometimes because it's such a burden and such a challenge. And it's bad enough when you have to go through that burden to get a job or housing or food from a food bank. But voting is a constitutional right. And we actually have an amendment that says that poll taxes, which this is, are illegal. And so we are now telling people all over the country, over 21 million, that if you want to vote, you have to be willing to go through all of these burdensome steps and to pay all of this money to make your voice heard at the polls. Uh, It's unconstitutional. It's wrong, but it is a law that exists. And so I built a whole organization around helping people get the ID they need that will help them make their voices heard. So Andrea, tell us a little bit about polling places. What's up with those? All right. So let's dig deep on the lack of polling places. Access to polling places is a really big deal in our country. Um, Making sure that voters have polling locations that they can go to that are nearby, that everyone knows where their polling place locations are. Um, One of the big issues that we've had, especially since uh, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, is that Uh, We've had an epic amount of polling closures around the country. So even in election cycles that are more normal than this one, uh, with COVID happening and a pandemic happening, um, polling location access is a problem. And it's often a problem for rural voters and for low-income voters um, specifically. And this year, one of the challenges is going to be uh, keeping polling locations open because we know that a lot of the poll workers are older and that many are high risk and not going to be um, able to fulfill uh, polling place obligations this year. And so we really need a new generation of poll workers to step up. So that's my plug for you to become a poll worker this year if you want to help democracy. For many people in rural and indigenous communities, um, getting to a polling place can take hours. This is something that Judith is going to speak about at length a little bit later. But I have to say, polling closures affect everyone. And this year in Indiana, I was affected by a lack of polling location when the normal polling location that I go to all the time was closed down. And I had to try to figure out where else I could go. Um, Luckily, I work in voting, so I could call around and find out. Um, But if I didn't have this job, that would be a more difficult challenge. And we know that for each step a voter has to take, there's drop-off. So if you have to do an extra action um, to find your way to the polls, it becomes a huge challenge. This year, you know, the challenge um, will probably hit a neighborhood near all of us. So next, we want to discuss a lack of non-English language resources when it comes to voting. As we all know, there are hundreds of languages spoken across the U.S. And as part of the Voting Rights Act, a part that actually still stands, jurisdictions must provide voting materials, uh, notices, ballots, etc. in any language that is represented by more than 5% of the population or more than 10,000 voting age members of a jurisdiction. So no, this is not for all languages, just languages represented by groups that Congress found to have faced barriers. And you can find a list of those groups and more um, in our weekly toolkit and on Instagram. But the challenge is that First of all, most people don't know about this rule. Uh, And so they may think, oh, well, I speak this this language that isn't English, and so I'm not going to be able to vote in that language, even if possibly they could. And then, you know, 
in addition to just the voting materials, voter education materials like election guides are really critical for people to understand what's on the ballot and decide who and what they want to vote for. And it can be really difficult to find those in languages other than English. So it's critical that if we live in communities, and we all do, where there are large numbers of people who don't speak English as a first language or who would be more comfortable and feel uh, more secure in voting in a language that isn't English, that we make sure that those resources are available to them both in the voting booth and at home. Uh, So what can you do? Well, a few things. First of all, we're going to keep beating this drum. Be a poll worker, especially if you speak a language other than English. It is so important for people to have someone at the polls who can help them navigate this process. Uh, Also, if you notice that there are voting materials that are not in a language that you think they should be, get in touch with your board of elections. And if they're not listening, get in touch with your secretary of state and really push for that option. And then lastly, take a look at election guides that are being made for elections in your area. And if they're not offering them in a language other than English, then either you know call them and let them know, hey, we could really use this in X language. But also, if you are able to translate or know someone who can, then volunteer your services or see if your friend or whoever will volunteer their services. Because a lot of times organizations would love to have election guides in different languages, but it can actually be really expensive to get those things translated. And if they have someone who will volunteer to help, then it makes it a lot easier uh, and better for everybody. We also wanted to bring up polling site inaccessibility. One in four adults in the U.S. has some sort of disability, and over 35 million voting age Americans have disabilities. In 2008, fewer than half of polling places inspected on election day had impediments. In 2016, it was two-thirds of those polling places had impediments. So what's an impediment to voting? One of the things that we know happens is that not every polling location is accessible in and of itself. So you may have steep ramps outside or uneven sidewalks and issues that can make it difficult with a person with disabilities to access the building. Once inside, not having the proper disability accessible voting equipment um, can be an impediment or having poll workers that are trained on that equipment can be an impediment. And here's another issue that you may not think about. Political parties don't target get-out-the-vote efforts specifically aimed at people with disabilities. That means that they're not looking for and helping people with disabilities proactively. To see more of what you can do, visit our Instagram and toolkit for ADA rights at the polls. In later episodes, we will be discussing incarcerated and previously incarcerated voters, as well as voter suppression tactics in low-income and marginalized communities. To find out how you can help combat any of the issues we've talked about today, go to our Instagram, at VoteThePod, where we link to the organizations most engaged in this type of work, and we'll give you some different information about how you can get involved and what the issues really are. Listening and learning from the organizations and activists on the front lines is the best way to support the work. So one of the things that we're going to talk about with Judith today is about how challenging voting is for Native voters. If you, and this is the case when it comes to any issue, not just voting, uh, if you look at all of the issues that we discussed today, they are almost always exponentially more difficult for Native voters. And we're going to talk with Judith about why that is. But one resource that I wanted to be sure to really highlight um, and recommend that you look at, and it will be in our toolkit, is... uh, 
NARF, which is a native rights organization, just published a new report called Obstacles at Every Turn. I really recommend reading it. I know a lot of us aren't used to reading a lot of scholarly reports, but it's actually really informative. It's not long. And it lays out the challenges facing native voters that we're going to talk about today with Judith. And it's a really critical document. Uh, Two more things. One, if you're at the polls and you feel that your rights are being violated, call 866-OUR-VOTE. That is election protection. They're incredible. They're a really good, trusted resource. And whatever is happening, if you feel like you or someone else are not being allowed to vote when you should be, then on election day, right where you are, call 866-OUR-VOTE and they can help. And lastly, States are facing a huge crisis right now. Our uh, elections are underfunded across the board in every state. And yet we right now are in a situation where states and boards of elections are having to make massive changes in order to address all of the challenges that COVID is presenting. And they need more money to do it. Right now, Congress is talking about the HEROES Act, which is another stimulus bill. Uh, We're hoping that they pass it soon. And in that act, uh, there's the possibility that they will send more money to states to help fund elections in this critical time. So call your member of Congress and tell them that you want them to include money for state elections in the HEROES Act. It's really important. It is one of the biggest things that we can do to help save our elections this year. After the break, we'll bring on Judith LeBlanc to help us understand a bit more about the history of Indigenous organizing and how her work connects to breaking down so many of the barriers to voting that we've been talking about. The podcast is brought to you by us. Yep, us. Really, just us. And if you want to support us and our work, you can go online and check out Vote.org and feel free to press the donate button. Vote.org recently wrapped our Vote Ready campaign, encouraging everyone to make a plan to vote early this year. Over 600 companies and 100,000 people participated. You can go to Vote.org to register to vote and to help us to continue to fight against barriers to voting. We use funds to reach voters where they are and provide information on how people can participate in this year's upcoming elections. We work with underserved voters and we go to places that campaigns won't to make sure we're asking every voice to be included in our democracy. For every dollar you give, we can reach one more voter. And you can go to spreadthevote.org and register to volunteer or donate and help us continue providing IDs and assistance to some of our most vulnerable voting populations. This week, big news, we're also launching Vote by Mail in Jail with this amazing org you may have heard of called Vote.org, in which we are working to help the hundreds of thousands of inmates who are eligible to vote, even while they're incarcerated, be able to vote by mail. So for more information or to get involved or support the project, visit VoteByMailInJail.org. Judith is a member of the Caddo Tribe of Oklahoma and director of the Native Organizers Alliance, a national Native training and organizing network. In the last four years as NOA director, she has worked on building relationships with tribes, traditional societies, and grassroots community groups in key Native communities and reservations through Native community organizing trainings and strategic campaign planning and support. 
Her work is centered around the belief that organizing a grassroots, durable network of Native leaders and organizers who share a common theory of change rooted in traditional values and sacred practices is the critical foundation to achieve tribal sovereignty and racial equity for all. Well, hi, Judith. Thank you so much for joining us on our show. It's my pleasure, Kat. Uh, so we wanted to talk to you about uh, Native voting in America, which I think is an incredibly important subject that nobody knows anything about. So, you know, many people don't know that uh, Native peoples didn't even get the right to vote until 1924. And even then, it took until 1962 for New Mexico to be the last state to fully enfranchise uh, all Native people. So can you talk a little bit about the history of voting in Indian country and how it affects Native voting now? Yes. I think the history of voting for Native peoples in the U.S. is very interesting because it runs counter to so many of the myths about our democracy. And you, you do know that in the Constitution, we were characterized as merciless savages. So getting the right to vote and then the... It took such a long time for it to be uh, implemented on a state-by-state basis is a reflection of systemic racism. And in 1934, there was a congressional act called the Indian Reorganization Act. And it was was a part of what what was called the New Deal. But what it did was impose a Western-style democracy and voting and tribal structure. Although there were quite a number of tribes who refused to sign on to the Indian Reorganization Act, and until this day still maintain traditional governance. So, for example, the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin or the uh, Yankton Sioux tribe in South Dakota still govern traditionally, which means that major decisions are are made by a meeting of the whole, of the entire tribe coming together to make major decisions together through consensus. And so the history of voting, I think for most people, uh, the most interesting part of the history is the 20th 20th century. You know, even after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed, we still continue, even until this day, to battle for equal access and the right to vote. So the 20th and 21st century, uh, you know, we're really uh, getting to the hat of whether or not we can exercise our right to vote and and having it heard in some of the most crucial elections in our history. Judith, can you tell us about native uh, organizing and uh, the organization that you are that you're leading? I, I'm I'm a member of the Caddo Nation of Oklahoma, and I got a Boston accent, so I am one of those Indians that walk with a high heel on one foot and a moccasin on the other. And I am so uh, blessed to be able to be the director of the Native Organizers Alliance. It's a national organizing and training network. We're deeply involved in uh, supporting the work of the tribes and the traditional leadership, uh, Native leadership on the ground. So we are kind of your one-stop shopping for training and strategic spiritually directed strategies, spiritually directed leadership development. Um, Can you take us through a little bit of how governance works on reservations and um, how does it work with the state and federal government? What are the interactions? And for our listeners, uh, 
how how does the state and federal government interact with reservations? Well, I think that's a very interesting question, considering the the decision by the Supreme Court last last week about a case from Tulsa, yes. which which ruled that half of the state of Oklahoma is still Indian territory. The way that in in kind of broad brushstrokes, um, state laws do not have jurisdiction on federal lands. Since we are the only peoples who have a collectively owned land base that has been self-governed since the beginning of time, these reservations uh, that currently exist, over 500, uh, there are two uh, layers of law. One is the tribal law, and the second is the federal law. For example, because federal law, this tribal law and federal law, we have the largest number of, of youth. Indian youth are the largest number percentage per capita in the federal uh, prison system because state law doesn't apply. So if you are arrested, it's either tribal law or federal crimes. And so they go straight from, from tribal court into federal jurisdiction, which means much stiffer uh, penalties and imprisonment. I think the most interesting thing about those uh, tribes that did not sign on to the Indian Reorganization Act is that they struggle today to ensure voter engagement, that the people come out to these general meetings to decide on issues that will affect uh, the tribe. Those who are elected to, to govern on our land are the people who we are in contact directly. We may know their family for generations. So I think what we're confronted with in the 2020 elections is really how do we, how do we maximize the Indian vote? How do we, in fact, uh, raise the level of participation to that of tribal elections? And what are some of your thoughts on that, uh, you know, when we're looking at tribal elections and sort of state and federal elections and these huge elections we're having in 2020. And there have been, you know, so many things that have changed, like, you know, the the lawsuit in Nevada, or I know that in uh, Arizona this year was supposed to be the first year that there was voting on the Navajo reservation, which now there's COVID. So I think we'll see what happens there. Um, what are some of the electoral policies. I mean, we also saw the ID issue in North Dakota in, in, in 18. What are some of the electoral policies that have had a really large impact on uh, Native lives and, and Native voting over the last few years? Well, I think, I think the bottom line in Indian country is that tribal sovereignty, the right to, for tribes to govern in a, with resources to develop um, and in order for us to actually uh, be able to live in a good way on our, on our collectively owned land, we have to achieve sovereignty. Right now, the federal government chooses rather not to recognize our inherent moral and legal rights when it comes to, for example, water and infrastructure projects or not. So we understand that tribal sovereignty, our being able to realize the rights of our treaties can never be achieved without a deeply democratic economic system and a deeply democratic political system. So therefore, Indian voting in the federal elections, national elections, state elections is very critical to us achieving treaty rights. So 
Right now, for example, there are seven states, battleground states, in which the Indian vote will be a swing vote. It's Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Colorado, and North Carolina. And in those states, we are facing tremendous obstacles. One, the Rona, coronavirus, and, and the and the huge impact that it's having for all peoples, but our people suffering at a very, very high uh, rate because of our, our, our conditions. The second thing is that, is that we, we're also facing, the, as in the black community as well, uh, problems around IDs because the state legislature had passed a law to uh, require street addresses on IDs. Indian reservations, we don't have st street addresses. But the truth is, that's, that's in the 21st century. We're still facing these kinds of obstacles in order to exercise our right to vote. I think it, it's important to understand that our collective ancestors, and when I say ancestors, I'm thinking of Nelson Mandela. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Sitting Bull. I'm thinking of mm. uh, Mother Bloor, the labor organizer, and Fannie Lou Hamer. Our ancestors prepared us for this moment. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, democracy is under attack. That the biggest issue that we have when you talk about uh, policing, when you talk about the right to health care, when you talk about the right to housing, it's, it's about democracy and protecting it and expanding it because all of these basic rights are, are under attack. We, Indian country, we're going to bring our medicine. We're going to bring the experience of our ancestors. But it takes, it takes a multiracial grassroots movement to defend democracy. Judith, um, speaking of building a multicultural uh, coalition, and in service and protection of U.S. democracy. What are your thoughts at a time where um, we know that our society has become more fractured uh, than ever before and that people are so oftentimes in their own silos and we see everyone turning against each other? What are your thoughts on um, how we rise together and build those coalitions and really make sure that we're reaching out um, to everyone and moving forward together? Well... To quote Homer Simpson, it's a crisis-tunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, it, it, and I've often thought about this in these last few months of the Rona and, and the police murders. And that is that, you know, pain and hope are very closely interwoven. I think that people are thinking in a way that's really indigenous, uh, relationality. We are all in relationship with one another. And the truth is that the Rona helped people understand that there are huge, huge disparities, racial disparities, and that the government is failing. The systems are failing to protect the peoples, all of them. But now, how do we organize it for that transformational change that is needed so that our communities are safe, so that our healthcare system is not driven by profit, but by need? But the truth is, without Black Lives Matter, without the dreamers, the undocumented 
undocumented young people, the fight for 15, the fast, the fast food workers, and without Standing Rock, people would not accept the norm of going into the streets in little towns and big cities whenever something is wrong. So we're in a new norm. It's up to the organizers to find ways to take this amazing heart, soul, mind, gut movement of people of all races and to organize it to ensure that transformational change is an outgrowth. Thank you. I just yeah, want to applaud. Me too. That was <laughs> amazing. Like, that's right. <laughs> I have a page and a half of notes. Uh, it's like it wasn't even a class. Um, Judith, our, we always like to um, make sure that we let our listeners know what they can do, what they can act on, how um, they can be of service. Um, what can our listeners do on an individual level um, that would help Native voters get to the polls? Well, I think, number one, they that your listeners must participate in every way possible, in maximizing the, the uh, right to vote for all people in their states. I mean, that's the first step. It's unfortunate that voting rights are, are, are governed by state law. It's inherently undemocratic to have states deciding on their own when people will vote and how they will vote. So it's really important that your listeners find every way possible to lobby and to make those changes to guarantee that people can vote, that people can walk in, vote in near their homes without IDs, done. The second thing we need from your listeners, that in those states, those seven states that I named, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, and North Carolina, they should do whatever is possible to support get out the vote efforts and working with tribes in their state on those reservations to guarantee that our elders, our young people, all of the people have the right to do their mail-in ballot. Now, you have to imagine having to drive a distance to a post office, pick it up, take it home, fill it out, and then drive back to the post office, many, many miles. So some tribes uh, are thinking about how do we exercise our moral, inherent, and legal right to vote? I think that it, it, every tribe has to come to some conclusion about what, what, how they're going to exercise their sovereignty and ensuring uh, some kind of a compact with the state uh, uh, government so that there can be collection points, mobile collection points, and, and, uh, and not take no for an answer. But this is a moment because of the, the impact of the Rona, because of the impact of an incredible magic movement moment in the streets in response to the murder of George Floyd, that we can make great strides in guaranteeing the right to vote in Indian country, but for all people. But it, it is about protecting and expanding democracy, a much deeper democratic uh, economic system, as well as a political system that will guarantee the future that our ancestors uh, dreamed of. Wonderful. Thank you so much for um, joining us today and for your wisdom and, and uh, for talking to us about voting. And um, yeah, we, we appreciate you. So Kat, what have we learned? 
So we've learned that it's the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, but that key provisions of the act were eliminated in 2013. So it's up for us to fight for voting rights now. And by the way, there's an opportunity to get a new Voting Rights Act passed. So pay attention to what anybody running for Senate in your state has to say about how they feel about voting rights. We've also learned that Native voters face incredible obstacles to voting and that it's the responsibility of all of us to ensure that every Native voter has access to the polls. And we've learned that there are a lot of things that you can do in your community to make sure that members of marginalized groups can vote. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll answer your biggest and most pressing voting questions all the way up until the election. To learn more about what's happening at Vote.org, you can follow us on Twitter and Insta. Go to Vote.org and donate today to help us reach voters in every state across the country. On the Spread the Vote side, check out lastelection.org, which is a webpage that we put together to show all of the initiatives that we're working on this fall. Um, and we'll be plugging in more information about how you can get involved and uh, what it is that we're doing to try to get out the vote as much as we can this November. Um, you can also, of course, always donate at spreadthevote.org slash donate. Uh, and here at Vote, the podcast, we will be discussing voting all the way to November. If you have a question you want us to address on the show, email us at votethepodcast at gmail.com or leave a message at the phone number in the show notes. To find out more about the show, including upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram at votethepod and subscribe.